0: The limitation, which I think for some people could pull the creativity out, for me did the opposite. It was like that boundary and that limitation of, it's just you in your basement. Oh my gosh, I would get lost in movement for like two hours. And I'd be like, "Wow, I just figured out how to do this thing I never thought I'd ever figure out in my life or have these little breakthroughs and synapses firing in my body in different ways. So it was a really rich and creative time for my practice.
1: You're listening to the Yoga Teacher Resource Podcast. Knowledge, techniques, and inspiration for your teaching and your practice. I'm your host, Madoha Heselink. If you're a yoga teacher who loves learning, is passionate about spreading the benefits of yoga, and desires more resources to support your teaching, you're in the right place. Let's get started with today's episode. I'm really interested to hear about your process of teaching online. And before we dive into that, I would love to get a snapshot of where you were before you started teaching online. What was your teaching like in person?
0: I mean, I started teaching in 2006. And if I'm honest, it was kind of the same style of teaching from 2006 to 2020, the same form of showing up and teaching my students And I never thought that there was another way to do this. The like structure of how I'm teaching yoga, I never questioned that there really was another option. I, yeah, I started teaching at studios. I I did the whole hustle in the beginning as a yoga teacher. I was a professional modern dancer at the time living in San Francisco in my twenties. And of course you can't make a living as a modern dancer. (laughs) So I got a yoga teacher training certification and taught yoga six to 10 classes a week six to 10 private clients a week hustling to their homes with all my bolsters and blocks and props i was also a massage therapist so my 20s in san francisco in the bay area was this really rich time of being in the performing arts as a dancer the somatic arts as a yoga practitioner and teacher and then you know the healing arts as a massage practitioner But yeah, I was running all over the place, teaching all the classes, subbing for everyone. I taught maybe one retreat a year and never questioned that structure. It's just so easy once you start a pattern to keep coasting with it. I mean, it it wasn't easy. It's a little bit of a hustle. It's like a holistic hustle. (laughs) But still, when I moved to Baltimore and started teaching here, it's the same way I would show up, like six to 10 public classes, six to 10 private clients zipping off to their various homes. One teacher training a year. I probably taught workshops like every month or every other month. That was my teaching like structure for how I
1: showed up to teach yoga before I started teaching online. And like so many yoga teachers, 2020 hit, the pandemic hit, and that was Mm -hmm. really, was that your first introduction to teaching online?
0: Yeah. I never taught online before that. And Honestly, Mado, like I, it's funny because right now we're on a, it's like a FaceTime kind of an app to see each other. But when I had friends that wanted to FaceTime with me, like I would always say to them, hey, I'd rather just put you in my ears and go on a walk and talk with you. Like I always got tripped out by like seeing my own reflection while I was talking and being with people. So I definitely never would have guessed that I love, that I would love teaching yoga online. But yeah, like, you know, March of 2020, there was no pause. I went straight from teaching in the studio without even a week off. I remember posting on Instagram to my community and putting it in my newsletter and saying, hey, I'm teaching my own class. It's on Zoom, and here's the link. And I just, there was no pause. It was like, okay, now here's what we do. And I think, like, I've always had this feeling about yoga as a practitioner. That it is adaptable, that it can like shrink or expand and like meet you exactly where you are in your life, whether you're injured or sick or well or young or old or fit or coming back into your strength, that there's always a way. It's just, I've always felt this way. I mean, I've been through two knee surgeries, I've been through two pregnancies and postpartums, and I've always trusted the yoga that it can meet exactly the moment that we're in it doesn't always have to be the same thing or the same way and so when the pandemic happened i think i just had this unwavering faith that like okay this is what i'm going to do i need to keep showing up and not just for my students although that was part of it but also for myself like there were so many unknowns in our world back in march of 2020 that like putting a stake in the ground and saying, I'm gonna show up every Sunday and I'm gonna be there and I'm gonna keep doing what I know and love to do and offer. Um, it just felt like seamless transition to be honest. Although of course there was a lot of tech to learn um, and there was a little you know, challenge with some of that. But I think if I rewind a little bit, part of the ease in that transition for me of like just seamlessly going into it right away, Um, there was like a path that was laid for me starting with motherhood. Like I had my first baby in 2013 and I went from as a practitioner, not a teacher, but I went as a practitioner from 90% of my yoga practice, pre having a baby being going to the studio and having this like big community that I felt a part of at a yoga studio and taking my friends' classes, my colleagues' classes, right. And 10% of it was like home practice. And if I'm honest, a lot of that was planning my own classes, (laughs) the home practice. And then when I had a baby in 2013, I mean, of course, after the initial like postpartum and sleepless part of it, like maybe four months postpartum, I started practicing every single morning and waking up before my children woke up to have like an hour or two on my mat. And so... I think because of that, like 90% or really like 95% of my practice was at home and self-led. And like five to 10% of it was with my friends and colleagues in the yoga studio since 2013. So because of that, like there were a few things that made that transition online easier for me. Like number one, I had a devoted space in my home where all my props were neatly stowed. And it felt like a clean, well-organized, cozy space to practice that then became a teaching place where I was broadcasting. Yeah, I was accustomed not to practicing online, but to having a self-led kind of like home space. My family was accustomed. I think this is a huge one for being able to teach online. If you have family or housemates, like they were accustomed to how important this was central in my life and i'm so grateful to my husband for really respecting that about who i am as a person because it is no small thing like i think we live in a world where embodiment practice can be seen as frivolous and my husband always understood that this was central to my identity and my life and my career and like you can't slip into like deep movement research if you don't have a block of uninterrupted time and we had small children like he was watching them keeping them away from me (laughs) so that I could like go deep into my creativity and deep into movement research and deep into my heart and my meditation. What a gift, right? Like my family was used to prioritizing mom's practice as a sacred space that, you know, sometimes it was interrupted, but for the most part, like not interrupted. Like my husband knew to watch kids and wrangle them (laughs) away from me, or I knew to wake up early when they were sleeping. And that was like, I think that was a challenge that a lot of teachers faced when they started trying to teach from home was like pets and children walking through while they're trying to like drop into that deep space, you know, that can be challenging.
1: Definitely. So you said that you love teaching online and Mm -hmm. did you love it right away? Did you have any hiccups? I loved
0: it. I was in love. Like guilty pleasure in love at the beginning when I was working with Yoga Works and they just did like these in the very beginning when we were figuring out what, how do we how do we get it out there we did YouTube I think I think it was YouTube live I have never tried it again since those early Yoga Works transitioned to online but it was like you pressed broadcast on YouTube and it was like a live where you couldn't see any of your students at all they could just see you and I couldn't believe I was getting paid to do yoga like (laughs) I loved it I mean I just it made the job way easier I just described the thing I was doing in as much clear detail and you know but suddenly because it was just a broadcast and there was no camera to see how people were interpreting my language and people can interpret words and demonstrations all sorts of different ways. So it's like a big part of our job to see and respond to what people are doing. But I mean, in the beginning, it was almost this guilty pleasure of like, wow, I'm, this is my dream job. I'm getting paid to practice yoga, which is one of my favorite things to do is to practice yoga asana. And I'm not even responding, I'm just doing. It felt a little indulgent, you know? Um, And then of course things evolved and it became Zoom, which I think is the best platform to share on like a virtual yoga because you can actually see how people are interpreting your your teaching and you can respond to that. I learned how to have a second screen in front and be really, mm, it's different. It was a path, like teaching yoga is online is very different than teaching in person. And so I learned to like demonstrate and Teach, meaning like see and respond to people at the same time. I think people think these are two separate acts, but they actually don't have to be. And there's a lot of great benefit to demonstrating. Like I started teaching yoga in a time where it was like, don't demonstrate, like get off your mat. And and I think now these days, a lot of people are starting to lean the other way. Actually, as children, we learn movement through imitation. We don't learn it from our, our caregivers talking through verbal cues the best, most immediate, researched way for someone to learn a movement is through imitating a demonstration. Yeah, I had to learn to do both because if you are just demonstrating, there's no added value. It could be an on-demand class, in my opinion. So I've mean, i taken platforms with people who are teaching their classes live. Like they have a schedule and they're showing us at 10 a.m. Eastern Standard Time to teach a class, but they can't see anyone. So I'm kind of like, well, what's the point? Like, why didn't you just record it at 8 a.m. and post it at 10? Like, there's no point, in my opinion. Um, I think that live component and learning the skill of, like, really seeing and responding to people in real time when you're online is
1: important.
0: So, yeah, it's evolved. I think, like, as a person, just in my life, I love teaching online because, I had two small kids when I started, like they're now six and 10. i I've been teaching since 2006. I've been teaching for 14 years when I started teaching online, now 17. And I was growing exhausted of running all over town and teaching at like three different studios and commuting and getting in rush hour and being nervous I would get a parking spot and be in a downtown studio right on time for my class or a babysitter coming and that handoff. And yeah, it, it was hard with, young kids. So it was in my personal life. Wow. I felt so lucky that I could just go down to my basement, hit record and and teach. As a practitioner, it came at a really good time. Like I never felt that I was in a vacuum. I never felt that I was like alone, just like getting bored. I had been studying yoga since 1998. So I had like, actually what I realized was like, oh my gosh, I had so much time to unpack and digest and process things I had learned. And I'm a perfectionist. And I think sometimes, especially like old school yoga teaching methodology where there's lots of like praise or like, let's circle around this person in the room and like psychoanalyze them through their body or their movement or pick apart what's wrong or what's amazing about them. Like it didn't sit well with my nervous system. So actually like, uh, It was so healing to have time to unpack poses that I felt like maybe a teacher would be like, let's look at her, she's doing it right, and circle around, or like, let's look at what's wrong, or let's, you know, like just that performative group culture of classes, like it felt really good to just be a yoga hermit. It felt so, there was so much richness to go into. So I never felt that I was cut off. I actually, wow, I felt more inspired, the limitation which I think for some people could like, pull the creativity out, for me did the opposite. It was like that boundary and that limitation of, it's just you in your basement. Oh my gosh, I would get lost in movement for like two hours and I'd be like, "Wow, I just figured out how to do this thing I never thought I'd ever figure out in my life or have these little breakthroughs and synapses firing in my body in different ways. So it was a really rich and creative time for my practice. And then, you know, for running my business, I think that I had developed a following enough that it could take off and fly. And like, I kind of had this web of people that I had pulled into, it was like a wider web. Like I could cast what I was doing wider and see the people that were really drawn to the precise quirky unique thing I was doing instead of when it was local and I had to do something really general a general vinyasa power class or whatever. It worked well for me and I loved it, I think partially because it took. And I think if you don't have a yoga newsletter, if you've just been teaching in studios and you haven't been collecting those emails, right? Like I started doing that as soon as I started teaching yoga with studios permission, of course, but I had a newsletter list. I had an Instagram following that was about yoga, not just about my personal life. I. Had people that would come with me. And I think it's hard if you try to put something out and people don't come with you, that can be a bummer. So I think, yeah, that was a big part of it too. Why I loved it was like I was at a point in my career where it was like a good time for that transition and taking more ownership.
1: One of the things that was really interesting about what you just said was about how. Taking your teaching practice outside of the environment and the context where it first developed gave you this freedom to rethink everything and to recreate everything from a more mature and personal place, Mm. where instead of just copying what you were taught and kind of going with that momentum, which is the easy route by jarring you out of that momentum, mm-hmm. now you had to really ask yourself what feels right for me. Yeah. And by doing that, you were able to build something that felt more authentic to you. And you were able to show up mm-hmm. in a way that felt right for you. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Even the classes that evolved, like I've added classes to the schedule that are like exactly what I want to be teaching in- it's so interesting, right? Like instead of being hired to teach a class that someone wants of you to think like, what does my student community want? And what is exactly what what I want to be sharing right now? And the permission to go into your unique voice I think has been afforded. I think I always a little bit felt like I had to fit in or offer something that was very predictable, very linear, very like, a power flow a simple um anyone could walk off the street and do this although it would be challenging for them but yeah I realized like I'm really interested in fluid movement and moving the spine in in less linear ways I'm really interested in novel movement you and I have talked about that before in transitions that are unexpected um and of course this goes back to what we were talking about earlier like if you're teaching a simple a predictable power flow perhaps you don't have to demonstrate as much because you can sort of call out the poses and with permission you could have somebody highlighted in zoom who's demonstrating for you who knows what half moon is right but if you're cueing a more multi-planar or novel transition if you're yeah linking things in a a less predictable way you probably have to be on your mat demonstrating that
1: (laughs) what is the income that you're generating like now compared to when you had some w-2s
0: it's like double or triple
1: I never would have
0: guessed that either. I never would have guessed that. I mean, here's the honest truth though, like before we get all excited about that and it's like, ooh, passing it out like Halloween candy. Like, no, I am working a lot more than I ever used to. I think when I was teaching that snapshot that I gave you at the beginning, where I was like, yeah, I taught six to 10 public classes and private clients and I did that all when I was primarily a modern dancer. Like I I didn't plan anything at that point in my life. I would just show up and kind of be like, okay, today we're gonna do some back bends. Like kind of have a rough thematic idea perhaps, but I would just show up and feel the vibe in the room and teach, same thing with my privates. I would just be like, how do you feel today? What do you need? And massages, I would just show up and like lay hands and start to feel where the energy went. But yeah, basically my job was like intuiting the moment you know, or like thinking of a theme I wanted to work with and putting a playlist together. (laughs) Like that was my troubles. That was, it was pretty simple. Right. And these days, like I actually plan my classes now. I think it's like funny to talk about that too, because I think, yeah, like sometimes at the very beginning of teaching yoga, people plan everything and write it down. Mm, For me, it's like at this point, like 17 years in, I'm back to this place of like deep movement research, recording my process and actually writing it down as a separate process. Like I have a recording of like something I'm researching and combing through. And then I sit down with coffee and like later the next day or in the afternoon as a separate practice, like comb through, edit out, prune down and create a flow. And I write it out again. Like there is so much more planning and innovation and Thought that goes into my classes now because I'm teaching less. Like, I'm only teaching three public classes and one prenatal yoga class that is a closed group each week compared to six to 10. That's four. And then I have private clients, and I still don't plan for private clients. I still show up and ask how they're feeling and really base what we're doing off of their needs. I'm planning more. I'm feeling more creative, but there's a lot of administrative work. There's a lot of like, How am I going to get people to take this class and how am I going to think about what I'm doing next season? Like I'm actually kind of thinking four months, three months in advance. I mean, in the case of retreats, even longer in advance, but there's a lot more work and effort going on behind the scenes at this point. That's why there's more income. I'm working harder, but I'm also having more fun planning classes and I feel like I'm teaching less, but in more focused and concentrated and like, expressive ways than I used to.
1: That makes sense. I mean, it does make sense that earning more would require more from you. (laughs) And in theory, you know, you could pull back in some ways and find a different balance with that if that was the choice that you wanted to make.
0: Yeah. Yeah. It's been a learning process. And I worked with you in what was it? Was it spring of 2022? And I learned so much and really started thinking about like my values and my offerings and, you know, what was fruitful and what was not, and really started restructuring things. And I feel like anything on the business side of things, there's always like a Big effort at the beginning. It's like you're pushing a boulder up a hill. It's like, oh, like there's moments where I feel like it's going to crush me and I'm going to fall back. (laughs) And then you get to a point where things flow a little better. And I still feel like, okay, like now I'm at this point where things are flowing well, where it's like fruitful on so many levels. And the next stage is what you just talked about. It's like pruning how to nourish my nervous system as I create a nourishing abode for my students in their bodies and in their nervous systems and in their lives.
1: Yeah. So let's dive into your do's and your don'ts for Mm -hmm. online teaching. And we already covered kind of the tech side of things in a previous episode. So this is really focused on the teaching portion.
0: Okay. Let's start at the beginning. Like when you log on to teach an online class, I like to open my room about 15 minutes before I start teaching but have the camera off and then come on right at time. I find one thing that worked beautifully in the studio was arriving early and talking to people one-on-one and welcoming them and getting to know them. And uh, the chit chat with a Zoom format where there's lots of screens, it just doesn't work very well. So I like to arrive right at time and acknowledge people who are there I try to say people's names and welcome them and say hi to them before we start moving. Chanting, in my experience, doesn't work well on Zoom. The sound warbles and yeah, it doesn't come through great when it's multiple voices. Same with music, I don't like it. I've taken classes where the teachers pipe the music through Zoom and I find this really jarring. Um, I mean, in general, just to pause right here and say like, I didn't even use music teaching on Zoom until basically like a couple months ago, I started putting together a playlist and putting it in the chat and saying, hey, this is optional, but I really liked practicing in silence, I realized. And I think people have such personal preferences around music. Like some people would love to do yoga to like, hip hop, but others would be jarred by that and really not like that. And it's just like such a personal preference. I really liked the simplicity of stripping music away. I don't like when music is piped through the Zoom. In so many ways, teaching yoga on Zoom has opened the invitation for greater autonomy around like, am I going to do everything that's being offered? And is my camera going to be for the student I'm talking about. Is my camera going to be on or off? Am I going to use music or silence? I think there was like a little bit of a group mentality in classes that like pushed people along in a beautiful way, challenged people. Yeah. Like people maybe pressed a little bit more with that group energy. Kelly McGonigal calls it collective joy, this like energy we tap into when we're moving together but I think there's an autonomy in a like hermit yoga space that people found through zoom and so music is one component of that as a yoga teacher subs it's like a really tough thing so because it's not a studio with multiple teachers my you know membership is me only teaching and so I've Hired subs that I really respect and love, and thought my students would love as well, but they don't want that. They've given me feedback. They want, they would rather have a pre recorded class from me as the feedback I've got. And so this is really hard. I try to be as consistent as possible. I'm taking Christmas Eve and New Year's off, for example. I went on a family vacation. I'll take maybe two weeks off, one in the winter, one in the summer. Of course, I lead a couple, two or three yoga retreats a year. So then there's that. And people are paying a monthly subscription fee. So I really don't want them to lose that value if they're expecting four classes a month. So this is like always a little point of stress for me is like, darn, it'd be so easy if I could hire someone and pay them to teach my class when I'm gone, but that's not what my students want. I've tried teaching on vacation or on a retreat and it's cuckoo and I won't do it again. (laughs) So how I've been working with that solution is, I'll put together a challenge that I'll sell to people who aren't subscribers and I'll give to f- for free to people who are as a bonus to make up for missed days. Like for example, my family, we just took a holiday to Mexico together. I was gone a whole week. And when I came back, I put this bonus three series together called Inner Fire Flow. And it was like a kind of a riff on my yoga hit class. And so, it was both a way for people to see what that class was like and maybe subscribe to it. But also it was actually to like, give a bonus to my subscribers who missed me that week and be like, Hey, I'm still thinking about you. I still know. I'm so grateful and I want to give you value. And I don't just want to like peace out on vacation and give you nothing while you're still paying me a monthly member rate.
1: So that's kind of how I deal with being away. Yeah. I think that the sub, situation is tough. I think it's even tough in person. I think even in person, people don't want to sub. There's so many factors that lead to whether or not we vibe with a teacher and it doesn't have that much to do with their competence. There's lots of very competent teachers that for one reason or another, a specific person doesn't vibe with. And then You know, the other thing too is that we build a level of trust with a person over time. And so if I come in to a class and most of the people in that class have already built that trust with you, then I'm kind of swept into that, into that trust that the other students have of you, which is very different from a sub coming in and nobody has that trust with that sub and everybody's kind of like, and then the sub is like, more nervous. It's it's a it's a yeah. weird thing. I mean, when I first started teaching, I think subbing was great. It's an amazing way to build a following and to get practice teaching. So I highly recommend that anyone who's a newer teacher sub as much as you can. And mm-hmm. for anyone who has their own membership, this is a, a challenge and a question that I hear again and again, and you know, we're not going to solve it today on <laughs> in the context of this podcast, but it is something that I know a lot of people think about and worry about. And I would say that from the student perspective, personally and I know I have like one foot in each world, and so mm-hmm. maybe I'm not the best representative, but I want my teachers to rest. And I totally get that. (laughs) And I don't feel any sort of resentment if they go away, even if they go away regularly, because I understand that they're human beings. And in order to not burn out, they need to fill their cup. I so appreciate that.
0: I mean, my practitioner community is so nourishing and such good people. And I'll often get emails echoing that. It feels really good. There's always wheels spinning in the background of like, oh, is this, you know, I want to provide value. (laughs) I don't want to be like ripping people off or, you know, because it's a monthly charge and they're getting one less or something. Yeah, but it's really good to hear that.
1: So do you have anything else that you found it does not work for teaching online?
0: yeah well being inconsistent (laughs) we were just talking about consistency i think sometimes new teachers when they create a membership it's so easy to have a pattern and a groove and just recreate the same thing without reflection and so a lot of teachers who taught six to ten classes a week running all over the place are like okay well now i have my own platform i'm going to teach like four to five classes on it and i don't think that's a good idea i think that like If you commit to one and it flourishes and people are drawn to it and you feel like rewarded for what you're putting out there with energy from people with earning income yeah like then maybe add some more but see what sticks don't just like spread yourself so thin that you're earning like ten dollars to teach a class and you're doing it five times a week and then you feel resentful and you're not able to be consistent. I think it's better to be super laser focused and consistent with one membership class a week. And honestly, that's where I started from March of 2020. I mean, the week that my studio class closed, I started a Sunday yoga class and it has been consistent. And it wasn't until the summer of 2022 that I added the other two vinyasa classes. I think a lot of yoga teachers are givers. So to kind of rein back what you anticipate doing or what would just be an extension of what you were doing in the studio when you're starting on your own kind of rein it back and like try to force the bloom in that direction like try to get people to go to that one class so it's packed and then if it does feel fruitful add another but don't just try to create the same old patterns that you were used to in someone else's studio
1: and what does work what works really well yeah I think having
0: a niche when you're offering something online is really helpful, both listening to your own desire of what you want to teach and noticing what your students are desiring of you. Early classes, I find work well. I mean, people are going back to the studio and, and people are staying online. Like, I think these days you'll ask people like what's going well and people will be like online yoga is over. But from my perspective, I've retained a solid, number of subscribers in my membership and it has not fluctuated. We've opened the doors to the possibility of online yoga. And there are people who deeply appreciate this, whether it's because they have kids in bed and they're getting it in before they're getting the kids ready in the drop off. And they're like, yes, I don't have to park and have a babysitter. My kids are sleeping. I can just go do yoga with Lily from 6.30 to 7.30 AM, take a hot shower in my own home and be in my yoga clothes, sipping coffee and making those lunches or getting ready for the work day or whatever. But yeah, I think early morning classes tend to do well. I think online yoga allows people to just consistently show up because there's less hurdles to get there.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I totally agree. For me to get to a 6.30 AM class in the studio, I would almost never do it. The barriers are too high, but I'm consistent at a 6.30 AM online class Because I can literally get up 30 minutes before the class. I don't have to warm up my car. I don't have to drive anywhere. I don't have Mm. to worry about how I smell. (laughs) Totally. I can in your pajamas. I, I can come as I am. And on a day when I'm like really not doing well, I can just have my video off.
0: Yeah, yes. I feel like, yeah, it really allows people to show up as they are in a different way. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so what else works? I think showing a clear demonstration works. There's different ways to demonstrate, but demonstrating and watching people is one way that I demonstrate. And then I'm thinking to the class we did this morning where I was teaching people breakdown of how to flip down dog, right? And we did it on a wall. So there was less weight bearing in the shoulders. And then we did it on the mat. And I was like, okay, stop and watch me. That's another kind of demo where you're like, stop, watch. And I'm going to break it down. Like if it was an encyclopedia and you were taking a picture and being like, number one, I rotate my feet in the same direction. Number two, I use the scapula to lift the chest number, you know, breaking it down with like a frame that you're like zooming a spotlight onto and saying like, this is what I want to teach, right? Like a moment, a precise moment that you want to teach A a uh, movement transition that you want to like distill and then I'll go to the screen and I'll be like now you do and I am going to watch and sometimes I'll even have to be like no 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 no, no don't do just watch because <laughs> some people will start doing it while I'm doing it I get that like there's people who learn that way but I really want them to like sometimes just watch and then do and then When I'm just watching them do, I can see what's going on. I can zoom in on one big square or look at the whole group or whatever. So yeah, like having clear demos works well. When I teach public classes online, I demonstrate like 90% of the time, I would say, 80, 90. When I teach private clients, I demonstrate like 5%, if that even, like I'm for the most part, unless I know someone needs a demonstration. Like a head on the Zoom and I'm looking at everything because it's all about them. It's a really different experience. When you are teaching yoga through Zoom, usually the student will, will highlight your square and they don't see anyone else in the class. Whereas when they're taking your class in the studio, they see 20 bodies all around them on all sides of them. So if they don't know the name of the pose in English or in Sanskrit... If they don't know what you're talking about, they just kind of play a game of telephone and look at the person near them. Can
1: you talk a bit about your approach to verbal cueing?
0: Yeah, I've always been drawn to teachers who could verbally cue in creative, precise, evocative ways my first teacher that I consistently practiced with in Berkeley, California was David Moreno and he spoke beautifully. I don't know, it almost felt like poetry to be in his class. Like he would give these images and weave sort of philosophical teachings through movement patterns. And it made me feel really calm and expansive and creative in my body. It added something aside from just the movement as like it was it was poetry when I lead teacher trainings, one thing I really start to drop in and realize is that it's not intuitive, <laughs> it's a practice, just like teaching yoga to convert movement into language. It's like learning a foreign language sort of like you have to practice it, and when I have baby brand new teachers that have never done it, it's so interesting you can see them thinking through how to translate it and like tripping on words like they're tripping over shoes and like having calm clear concise verbal cues is important invitational language options you know walking through the most simplest option to the most advanced option in that order so everyone has a place of belonging offering moments of silence is of course important i think in a practice not over talking I love engaging imagination, you know, mixing up how you cue movement, I think is important too. Like if you're always using imagery and metaphor, it can get pretty flowery (laughs) and there's different people in your class and
1: it's not about shoving as many cues as possible into that moment. It's almost like, it's like this recipe, right? And it's, it's an artistic, intuitive process of developing the recipe where Mm. there's a certain amount of clear, concise. There's a certain amount of dynamic, evocative. And then there's that space and that silence and that container for people to absorb and experiment with the cue and or find their own way. Yeah, yeah. So what would you say is the best way to improve cueing skills? Uh,
0: A combination of taking classes with a quality of mindfulness and reflection. One friend of mine, whose class I love taking does exactly what you just said. She does not over talk. She keeps it so simple. and, And what I feel when I take her class are big insights in my life, bubbling up through me, like sort of psychologically and emotionally. And I love the way I feel after I take her class. And then there's teachers that I love who have so much level of detail and framework. And like, it's like learning a, you know, like order of equations and math, like you do this and then you do this. And I feel that I'm being guided by this expert Sherpa through like wild terrain. And they know exactly, precisely what to articulate next. And I trust it so wholeheartedly and it feels so delicious to like melt into someone who has that body of knowledge and detail. And I've, I've taken those kind of classes and been like, Ugh, I want to be able to do that, you know. And then yeah, I've taken classes with like my teacher David, who's so poetic and weaves bigger thought and sort of philosophy and um, poetry into way the way he teaches movement. And I'm so in love with that. So like notice, get really clear when you're taking a class of what it is that lands well for you and that you would like to emulate. And then I think the, it's just like practicing yoga. We have to practice teaching yoga. So sort of talking out loud, even if you're in the shower or like thinking of how you would cue your
1: movement and, and working that through when you're not doing it is helpful when you're taking a shower, brushing your teeth. Or even during your own practice, I suggest that sometimes to people where practice and talk your practice out loud Mm -hmm. to give voice when there's no students around and there's no, Mm -hmm. nobody's judging you. There's no expectations. It can be playful. You can experiment yeah. while you're practicing. How, does it, how would it sound to express this? And that can mm-hmm. sort of start to imprint itself into your body so that you can mm-hmm. return to that when you're mm. teaching, whether you are in the pose or not. Yeah. And there's one more thing, too, mm-hmm. which is really relevant to this conversation today, which is that if you're teaching online, you're probably recording your classes. Yeah. <laughs> This and is a you great can point take out. your own class
0: and mm-hmm. that
1: will teach you so much. And probably what it will teach you is that you talk too much.
0: Mm-hmm. Almost yep.
1: guaranteed. It will teach you you're saying more than you need to.
0: Yeah. People might notice they're like chomping at the bit to like, wait, hey, keep moving or yeah. Yeah. Like what you're saying or have quiet.
1: Yeah. <laughs> so when, we teach online. One aspect that's missing is touch Mm -hmm. and people definitely have strong opinions about hands-on assists, adjustments, touch. Can you tell me about your approach to touch and Mm -hmm. how you feel you compensate for that being online?
0: Yeah. Well, I love hands-on adjustments, and I know not everyone does these days. I mean, I was a massage therapist. (laughs) So I believe in the healing potency of touch, and I have received deeply instructive hands-on adjustments. And I've also changed the way that I offer them a little bit when I am in person. For example, I think earlier in my career, I was more interested in like, deepening someone and sort of me bracing and stabilizing and then mobilizing another part to deepen and now like for example if i used to like stabilize someone and rotate their ribs open in triangle pose now what i'll do is kind of give them something to press into so like they're pressing their hand against my hand like we're arm wrestling and then as they push into me and activate strength they get to dial the volume up or down on how much they're rotating open so like i have changed the way that i offer adjustments but i still see a lot of value in them and i've been touched inappropriately by male yoga teachers like i was in shavasana once when someone put their hand across my middle of my breasts and i was like dude move your hand (laughs) So I've been there and I know there's a lot of this going on and that we came into this Me Too movement where finally people were like getting traction with their voice and sharing these transgressions, but don't throw the baby out with the bath. It's like if you had a surgeon who was abusing their power, would you tell all surgeons to stop operating or would you be like, that guy's fired, <laughs> you know? So I still believe in adjustments. That's like a long answer to that short question. So. Online, we have to be really creative with workarounds to hands-on adjustments. Like you can instruct your students how to adjust themselves. Like if they're in, you know, side-angle pose, they can grab with their top arm, the underside of the rib cage under the, the chest and, and grab, hold tight. Not just like sliding your hand, like you're putting lotion on, but hold on tight. and and turn so you can self-adjust your thoracic rotation there inside angle pose. You can use props. I mean, I love using props. That's like a big part of what I'm passionate about as a yoga teacher. But I like to use props for proprioception, for awareness of where the body is in space, for making poses more strengthening. Sometimes we use a prop to actually make ourselves work harder, not drape over it, for really bringing awareness to like, uh uh-uh, here's where you actually are. Cause sometimes the map of where we think we are and where we actually are is not lined up and props can help people with that. So one example of kind of a self adjustment you can make with props is like, if you put the strap, under the chest around the rib cage if you're teaching 360 rib breathing to your students have them breathe into the whole perimeter of their rib cage and feel the strap expand evenly in all directions so props can be a great way to work when you're virtual with adjusting some of the verbal cues with like visual imagery can also almost be like a self-adjust when people hear sometimes that's a way for information to land just like an adjust helps information to land breath can adjust so like if you're doing a spinal twist to the right for example I'll often say like like say you're on all fours thread the needle towards the right like um you know inhale and widen your right collarbone as you exhale feel like a sigh that left back lung moving into the front body so breathing just like getting people to plug into how breath moves the body, how breath does the pose for you, can help people um, self-adjust oftentimes, or at least enliven, because sometimes there's this like wooden, dormant ice sculpture
1: (laughs) quality that people
0: get into when they're holding a pose. And so breath can adjust in all sorts of different ways. second screen, oh my gosh, you and I have talked about this, like having a second screen Really helps people. You were saying, like, oh, as a yoga teacher, listen to your take your class, listen to your voice. Well, I would also say, look at your class and, ha- like, are, what about you? Are you actually doing what you think you're doing? It's so fascinating to me that oftentimes what we think we're doing is not what we're doing. And, and like, things can be really cattywampus. Now, I know this brings up a whole lot of things, and I have a lot of, especially female yoga students who want to come to yoga to feel their bodies, not to worry about what they look like. But I would argue that like, um, being empowered and not caring like what you look like for somebody else's sake, but using your reflection as information to help you plug into your practice is empowering. Um, I also totally respect if people don't want to work with mirrors and second cameras and stuff like that, because I know. I know some people want to feel more than they want to see, but I think both interoception or feeling within and proprioception or like awareness of where you are in space are equally important. And yeah, I think having a second screen or a mirror can help us with that a lot. I know with my scoliosis being a little crooked, it's a very helpful tool to work
1: with. I know also for some people, there may be a barrier of like tech is not... Yeah, their favorite. And so just the idea of messing with more than one device feels like it's not in alignment, not bringing them towards their yoga practice. And so that Mm -hmm. would be another valid reason not to do it. Like for me, I think it's really cool to be able to see myself while I practice. Mm -hmm. And it does surprise me frequently how, what I think I feel like, like, I think I'm in such a deep backbend and I look over, I'm like, wow, <laughs> I'm like pretty much straight up. Like I have no backbend left. Okay. <sighs> I mean, and it, it's not, you know, because I don't really have, I don't feel like I have trauma related to how I look. Sometimes I have dissociation as your body changes over time it can be hard to identify with who you see in the mirror because I think you develop an identity at an early age and then part of you still thinks that you're like 17 for the rest of your Mm -hmm. life, (laughs) you know, like whenever your ego (laughs) like went through its major development, part of you still (laughs) thinks that that's what you look like. And so I definitely have times when I look at myself, I'm like, who is that? (laughs) Like, that is not Mm -hmm. me. I don't, identify Mm -hmm. with that body that I'm seeing. Mm -hmm. So, you know, that is not necessarily an experience that would be wise for everybody to cultivate, you know, like, it's just individual, it's got to be an empowered decision of this. Yes, this is something that is adding to my practice and my experience of being present in this moment and being in my body and working with my body to learn about myself or no, that's not going to help be helpful at this time.
0: Yeah, totally.
1: So the final thing that I want to talk about before we wrap up is your process of planning and how does your planning process specifically change when you're teaching online versus when you're teaching in person?
0: I'm a planner, not a winger. (laughs) I am teaching so many less classes now that I'm teaching online. And that is because I have a membership model. And so I have a guaranteed monthly income from my classes. And I'm not counting mats and hoping that it's not a seasonal lull like holidays or mm, summer. Like I have a guaranteed. And so I'm teaching less. I mentioned earlier, I'm doing more business work. So I'm actually working. <laughs> more but i'm teaching less because i'm teaching less and how i'm wired i want to put that energy into my teaching that i used to put into teaching six to ten classes into planning classes that i'm thrilled to teach i guess like my relationship to planning classes went from like as a brand new teacher my notebook my plan memorized like it was like a safety blanket to like this period where I was teaching yoga maybe like five to 10 years where I was like winging it every single time and just feeling the energy and like like having a lot of fun. And in some ways it was easier to end on time when I did that, because I was like just feeling the energy and I could also look at the clock. <laughs> but, um, but I will say when I was kind of winging it and feeling the energy, the thing that I also was doing uh, unintentionally was like reinforcing patterns and habits that were like my preferences over and over and over. And I started to get tired with myself for that. And so I started like wanting to have a more rigorous planning process in place. I will have like a gathering phase where maybe I'm reading something or information I gather from rolfing, from working with my rolfer or like, um, I love, honestly, this is like, I feel like I'm admitting, but I love Pinterest for yoga inspiration. (laughs) Like, Like I have a... Vast Pinterest board of like, ooh, that look, I'm going to try that on my Karunta yoga wall, or like, ooh, yeah, like I get visually, I get excited looking at pictures of like novel poses and ways of using props. And yeah, and then I'll, I'll like, of course, when you imitate, you find your own way out, you find a different way. Like you're like, oh, but I'm going to add a block here and I'm going to do it a little different and I'm going to incorporate, you know, you're never exactly imitating. So, yeah, there's like a gathering phase and then there's like checking in, like what is the intent, right? Like today's class was like getting into the scapular intelligence and getting into the chest and like mobilizing scapula on rib cage so that we could start to experiment with flipping the dog. That was kind of the intent. So I'll have that as a like, okay, zoom out, that's the intent. And then um I'll get down and play. <laughs> so I'll just like put my phone on and record like a, a jam session where I'm just like getting curious and playing and some of it's like developmental movement patterns or things I learned in a Feldenkrais class or you know all sorts of different mix and match of different you know yoga practices and somatic practices I've studied and I'm like I'll get lost in that for like a couple hours <laughs> but I have a recording so I don't have to write things down back to what you were saying earlier about the verbal cues when you were adding in like what you would recommend people to do And you were saying do the practice and think of how you would cue it like i don't talk through when i'm doing this but what i will do i actually this is the only thing i write down because it can't catch in a recording is sometimes i'll do something and i'll be like i've never felt the like bottom inner border of my shoulder blade in the way i just did i have to pause and write it down i have to write down like what i was doing what the pathway to get there was and like capture that so I can teach that. So like sometimes that will actually inspire verbal cues is like a new awakening or a breakthrough or like a a synapse that's like, ah, now we're connected, you know, and so I'll write down that level of information so I can give innovative verbal cues based on my own experience too. But so yeah, I record it all and then I kind of just put it away and I like go on with like, maybe I'm teaching a client or maybe I'm picking my kid up from school or whatever. And then later in the afternoon, it's like, I'll sit down with a blanket and a cup of tea and I'll like write it all out and I'll prune and then I pull the pieces that make sense, that fit together that I think my students would like not
1: <laughs> like hate
0: me for making them try, you know, like, like, yeah, just putting together something that feels coherent and approachable and relevant to my students because some of it's only relevant to me, maybe it's something for scoliosis or something for my practice that no one else would
1: enjoy doing.
0: And then I teach it. And like, sometimes I'll, I'll edit after I teach it and teach it again. Or if you have a good class, like I have them all in the Google drive. So if I have one where I get a lot of good feedback or I felt really excited about teaching it, I tag it and I come back to it and use it for retreats. Because on a retreat, I want to have like workshops, not just like feel good vinyasas.
1: Awesome. So as we wrap up, is there anything that you feel was missing from the conversation today about teaching online or anything that you just want to emphasize?
0: I mean, no, I guess like one thing I'm seeing as an overarching theme from the very beginning of this conversation is like, sometimes what you think is a limitation opens you to a world of creative generative possibility And sometimes we become so (laughs) dog-eared in our patterns and in our habitual ways of doing something, we can't see any other possibility. And this whole process of moving my teaching to primarily online, I mean, I do teach in-person series and I teach in-person retreats, but primarily online has been a limitation in a sense, but it's also opened a world of creativity and expression and ownership and connection.
1: Yeah, that's beautiful. It's sort of like the yogic practice of going against the grain, deliberately disrupting your normal patterns to shine a light on what they are and then make deliberate choices about what of those habitual patterns you want to keep and which ones you want to let go of and replace with new patterns. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you so much, Lily, for sharing this conversation Mm -hmm. and for sharing your practice with me three times a week. Aw, thanks, Madel. It's an honor to be here.